Today we have Adam Gilbertson giving a seminar. Adam is a former DPhil student in the department and I have to say that I supervised him and one of the things I really respected about Adam was he knows how to be calm and he's calm most of the time, deceptively calm, but knows when it's important to get down to work and do things properly. He continues to be a research associate at the department in Oxford and he's a postdoc research fellow at the School of Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. At UNC he's based at the Institute of Global Health and Infectious Diseases and the Department of Social Medicine and the UNC Center for Bioethics. At UNC, he's working on the Search HIV Project and his work is focused on social and ethical implications of existing and future efforts to cure HIV. So Adam, um, you're focusing on the HIV Project today and uh, I invite you to, um, to take over. Well, thank you for the kind introduction, Stanley. All right, is that showing for everyone? Yeah. Okay, great. So this, this project started out, well, I guess back in 2017, and this was a new area of research for me, looking at circumcision um, as a, a method of HIV prevention, as a public health intervention. And uh, you, we've already sort of discussed this a little bit, but um, after leaving ISCA I, at Oxford there, I, I joined a postdoc program at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and as Stanley mentioned, I was working on HIV cure-related research, the, the social and ethical implications of cure research, which at the, the start of the program we referred to as cure research, and by the end we're, we had moved on to remission as the goal for various reasons. But that's what, I mean, that was my first sort of dive into the world of, of ethics and bioethics, and it wasn't something that I had ever planned or had seen myself doing. But it was, I had some great mentors at UNC and it, and it ended up being a quite interesting area of research to pursue. And in 2018, uh, my postdoc officially ended, but as Stanley mentioned, I'm still um, a uh, sort of a member uh, of the Department of Social Medicine and the Center for Bioethics. But I started up a, a position as an associate research scientist at the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation which is a nonprofit profit research organization that is based in Chapel Hill, although there are offices around the country. And that's what brought me into the, this, this area of, res, uh, of circumcision research. Some of the, some of the folks there were, were working in this area and they heard about me and that I was doing some ethics stuff and that I had worked in Kenya previously. And so they sort of recruited me to, to join them. And since that time, I, we, you know, the, the, Circumcision research has continued, but I've also moved into looking at uh, opioid harm reduction in North Carolina and around the country as well. But that's uh, beyond the scope of this presentation. The research I'm, I'm presenting today, you know, certainly my own, but there's a lot of uh, other people involved. Uh, Winnie Luceno, uh, who is based at Pyre, is the PI on, on the project and, and certainly a senior author on most of this work. And Stuart Rennie as well who's a bioethicist based at UNC. And we have other collaborators, certainly, uh, Daniel Quaro from Kemri in Kenya and the others that you see. So this project started before I ever joined Pyre and it was, it, it sort of emerged out of some work that Dr. Luceno was doing in Kenya already looking at the responsible conduct of research with uh, HIV research with adolescents in Kenya. And while they were um, in the fields, 
doing some interviews, they, you know, sat down with a, a local, um, I think he was in, from the Ministry of Health in Western Kenya. And he said, well, you know, if you're really interested in ethic, the thing you should be looking at is voluntary medical male circumcision. Because I've heard that there's some odd things going along with that, some things that we might be uh, concerned about. And so Dr. Lasano then applied for an, um, a supplementary grant to, to look at this issue, and we headed off to do, to do some work when that was awarded. So I don't know how much everyone knows about voluntary medical male circumcision, but this is a public health intervention that started, I think the WHO uh, came to start promoting it in about 2007. And it was based on, the idea was based on three studies from the, the mid-2000s. I think first was published in about 2005, I believe, which showed a relative risk reduction in the odds of acquiring HIV through sexual intercourse, female to male transmission of about 60%. And so this was a huge splash in HIV prevention because that's, a, of course, a huge number in terms of the reduction in risk. And so the, the WHO, UNAIDS, USAID all came on board, were promoting it. And then the US, uh, US PEPFAR began funding the program. And, and so they've continued to fund most of the work across Eastern and sub- Southern Africa to this day. So there were 14 priority countries that were identified that had significant populations, traditionally a non-circumcising group. And so they, they were the, the targets of this proposed intervention. And so the, the, the other important thing to, to, to point out, of course, is that you know, on the individual level, this does not reduce the risk that uh, women face of acquiring HIV at all. And in, there has been some research that shows that it could actually increase their risk. Regardless, this was, you know, a, you know, this was promoted and, and, and began about that time. Um, and since then, there have been about 23 million men and boys who have been circumcised um, as a part of this program. Um, across uh, Eastern and, and Southern Africa. So Kenya is, is, is touted as one of the big success stories uh, of VMMC in Africa. To date, there have been, what, this number is a little old, 2.2 million or so. I probably, it's probably upwards of around two, two and a half million uh, men and boys who have been circumcised as a part of this program. And most of this work um, is occurring in Western Kenya, uh, where the Luo ethnicity is, is dominant, and they are a traditionally non-circumcising people. This is around the Lake Victoria area, Kasumu area, um, Nyanza area of the country. And the, the way this works is, and this is sort of important to, to, to um, speak about, is that the, so the PEPFAR is funding this. So the United States is funding this. And I think they spent, the last time I checked, it was about a billion and a half dollars, taxpayer dollars to fund these sorts of programs across across Africa. But um, the actual cutting, so to speak, the actual circumcisions, the programs are run by by local NGOs in the area, which are referred to as implementing partners. And most of, as you can see on the slide there, most of the, 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 the males who are circumcised are in younger age groups. So between 2016 and 17, but 60% were ages 10 to 14. You know, this sort of makes sense. The WHO, or I think PEPFAR, set a age limit. Or it may have been Ken, the Kenyan government 
changed it to 10 to 14. Originally, they were doing 15 and above, and then they reduced it down to 10 to 14, or uh, as a, a cutoff, sorry, 10 years of age, um, I think in 2014, citing high demand in this age group is one of the reasons for doing so. The, the real reason is probably is it's pretty difficult to get men and boys to agree to be circumcised. It's easier to get younger boys to do it than, than, than older, uh, especially young men, to agree to the procedure. And we have targets that are, are, have been set every year for different regions. And those, re- those targets have been set by PEPFAR. And they're based on modeling about if, you know, they, you know, mathematical modeling to show if you want, you know, X reduction in population level infections over whatever time period by 2030 or what have you, then in each of these areas, we need to, you know, conduct this many circumcisions per year. So they have, they've been setting these pretty ambitious targets since the beginning of the program. And it is the uh, implementing partners, the IPs, who are in charge of meeting those, those targets. So their, their continued funding across the years, these NGOs, is based on them meeting these targets every year. So we set out to learn, to learn more about what was going on in this program. And there had been, at the time we started in 2018, there was you know, existing literature that showed that there were some issues of, uh, around consent, possibly, that um, there were concerns about whether or not adolescents and their parents understand exactly, you know, why this these the this program exists, why they're being asked to circumcise their boys and things like that. And so th- there was reason to believe that there there might be some some interesting ethical issues that uh, to address within the country. So we ended up conducting some. Uh, interviews with circumcised adolescents, as well as those who had not yet been circumcised, as and their parents, and asking them reasons about why they did it or why they haven't done it yet, and about their general experience uh, and all of that. We also conducted so so those interviews were conducted by our um, our staff members who are Kenyan, and so some of the names on that previous slide conducted those. I conducted uh, most of ours, I think almost all of the, the interviews with the, the stakeholders. So these are the mobilizers, the clinical providers, the teachers, the counselors, you know, the, the professionals who are providing the service. Now, the mobilizers, it's important to understand, are staff members employed by the NGOs who are going out and, and recruiting the boys for circumcision. And the way they do this there was a, a picture, I, I think, on a previous slide where it showed boys in a classroom and an adult walking around. Most of the recruitment is happening in school. So they, the recruiters, the mobilizers, will come into schools and deliver what they call a health talk, where they explain the reasons behind circumcision and its importance, and then take down the details of boys who might be interested, hound out uh, consent forms for them to take home to their parents, um, and that sort of thing. And that's why we included teachers as, and, you know, sort of school officials as stakeholders for these interviews as well. The clinical providers are the nurses, the surgeons, uh, the counselors are employed at the VMMC clinics to offer HIV counseling to the boys prior to um, the surgery and afterward as well. And then I also conducted, well, there were two of us, myself and one of our Kenyan partners, 
conducted the observations. I, I would have loved to have called it uh, participant observation, but I wasn't really participating. I was just kind of hanging around the clinics and just seeing how everything happens there for myself. We also went to uh, a couple of health talks. We went to some recruitment activities in public marketplaces within fishing villages, what they call road shows where they have music and dancing and skits and things to promote BMMC, um, and then as, as well as some door-to-door -door activity. So here are just a few photos. This is on the side of a clinic showing the, um, just a sign promoting BMMC. Here, this was, this was an interesting um, case where a lot of the, the clinics are pretty um, basic. And you can see this sort of engaged sign written on cardboard. Um, this room was, had a dirt floor entirely. And this, they were conducting surgeries in this room until we arrived. And then they quickly stopped what they were doing and moved over to some of the existing facilities that, you know, had proper flooring and water and things like that. But this, and this is one of those, you know, an example of one of those, you know, more pop, proper settings, more hygienic settings. This one has two beds right together. Um, surgeries would be performed on either side at the same time. And here's another one. This, this clinic has four beds right together and boys would line up. The first time I came, or this was one of the first clinics I ever visited. And on that day, there were probably 100, 120 boys waiting outside to be circumcised that day. And so you had a situation where you'd have all four beds going with staff. You'd have boys queued up. One boy would be on the bed. Um, getting circumcised, and you'd have the the staff would have the next boy in line stripped down, and he'd be standing ready to go as soon as one was finished. They'd do some sanitizing, and the next one would jump right up, and there you go. Um, it was really, you know, somewhat shocking um, to see how this was working in person. They had an on-site incinerator for the medical waste, and I sitting outside, you know, there'd be ash. <laughs> from the incinerator coming, settling down on your shoulders. And it's just, um, it was pretty, pretty interesting. So some of our findings, I mean, one of the things I, I, I need to point out and explain is that because that recruiting, well, the reason the mobilizers prefer to recruit within the schools is that it's the most convenient, easiest way to do it, right? You can address, you know, 20, 30 boys at a time, and get those who are going to be circumcised. If, if you're not doing it in schools, you're either going door to door or you're trying to run events in villages and things like that, which, you know, takes a lot more effort. It's more costly. You've got to travel more. And the, you know, return on investment is just not as high as in this case. And, th and that's something else to remember. It's like with those targets coming down from PEPFAR, these individual organizations have their own internal targets in hopes of meeting them. So mobilizers who are, the more boys you bring in for circumcision, uh, the more money you're going to make, uh, which is very problematic. So the schools are, are the best place to recruit if you're a mobilizer. The problem is that the schools are very strict and they don't let the mobilizers come in for their health talks at any time of year. They're mainly because they don't want the disturbance. They don't want the boys distracted. They don't, you know, it's, it, it takes up a school day, essentially. So the only times the schools will allow the mobilizers in is after the exams. So 
just before the holiday period. So what this creates is, is a sort of seasonality for BMM, uh, BMMC, a high and low season, which I'll, I think I talk about in a, on a later slide as well. Because if it's only, you know, you have the time between the end of exams and the boys leaving, going off to their villages and such for, for, for the holidays in between, then you only have a, a short period of maybe three to five days or so where you can actually access the numbers of recruits that you're after. Um, and so this leads to really high numbers. Like I said before at that clinic, when there were 120 boys sitting outside, you know, it's not like there's 120 every day, there's 120 during this high season when, you know, just after the exams. We also found that, you know, they were circumcised, like I said before, the, the, the age limit is supposed to be 10 years old for the boys to be circumcised. And just this year, I should say, now PEPFAR has come out and said they're not going to fund any circumcisions in Kenya under the age of 15. So now it's just 15 plus, and the, which is, a, I think, a very good thing. But while we were there, we certainly, you know, just in talking to some of the mobilizers and, you know, asking some of the boys how old they were, there were certainly boys who were under the age 10, they're getting circumcised. So in practice, that, you know, that age limit was not. Um, always respected. There were lots of issues of, uh, related to consent. There were mis... Well, I'm going to come to this another slide, so I'm <laughs> dwelling on here. But this is just an overview. So the ex you know, excessive burden on VMMC staff, um, we witnessed what you know what we think resulted in a reduced quality of care. And, and most of this we attribute to this, this notion of trying to meet these targets, trying to, to really get as many boys as possible so from the mobilizers, I've already mentioned how they get recruited uh, uh, in schools. We did have some mobilizers, a couple who admitted to sort of, you know, paying boys, especially paying boys small amounts of money to help them recruit other boys and things like that. During the, the health talks that we witnessed in the schools, the language that we heard used by the, um, by the mobilizers was quite stigmatizing and derogatory. I mean, they would say things like, they'd, they'd refer to the foreskin as the, the limbi, the, like the whistle or cold matumbo, which is goat intestines, the sleeve of the sweater. I mean, like the, this, this quote here is just so telling. I mean, it's like, you know, this was a mobilizer, two boys in a classroom, you know, those are you that are still having the foreskins, you were the ones who were spreading the virus. I mean, blaming them because they're they're choosing uh, to remain uncircumcised. And the other thing is that you know the issue that comes out, especially in the classroom, is this issue of of peer pressure, because the mobilizers are asking, "Who in here is not circumcised?" You know, and they're asking them to raise their hands, whereas you know the boys there who are circumcised are looking down on, on those who have not. We heard uh, during the interviews with boys. They would say, you know, we asked, you know, what, how do you treat a boy who's not circumcised? They said, oh, that, you know, we laugh at them. They're dirty. They're women. They would say, you know, if they try and bathe with us down at the river, they have to bathe after us because they're unclean, they're dirty, those types of things. Um, and then we could talk, uh, uh, there was problematic messaging in terms of this 60% reduction of risk as well, but I'll come to that a little bit later. So I, I, I've already explained this one, you know, about the the high and low periods um, and the long waits. I mean, we saw boys waiting five, six hours at the clinic to to get access, you know, to get in to get a circumcision. They'll be brought together 
on a bus from the school, the mobilizers will, will pick them up. Uh, you know, just the not like a school bus we think of in the United States, but the little sort of VW van type buses, the Matatu style buses that you find in Kenya. And so they'll be brought in groups and they'll stay until everyone is circumcised and then they'll be ferried home. And, you know, there's, you know, there may be access to water for them to drink, but there's, you know, they're promised a soda at the end of the circumcision. A lot of times the sodas weren't available and you had boys just sitting there all day long. And then once they're circumcised, if you're the first boy who's circumcised, you're giving some, given some Panadol and sent outside and you're sitting under a tree for the rest of the day in, in, in some cases waiting to go home. And I mentioned, you know, missing consent formed forms, forged signatures. We had boys tell us that, you know, I just went and had a friend's parent sign my consent form for me, or an older brother signed for me, or I signed for my parents myself. We had instances where parents, you know, told us in interviews that they didn't know that their son was going to be circumcised before it happened. He came home circumcised, and that's when they discovered that that was the case. It was, it was very troubling in those cases, for sure. If parents don't know that their boys are going to be circumcised, then they are not going to be prepared to care for them afterward. And that's going to really increase the risk of adverse events, uh, infections and that sort of thing. And this, you know, these boys and their families are not living, in, you know, in most cases in the best conditions, right? They lack running water and that sort of thing. So that's, that introduces quite a lot of risk, I would say. A lot of parents and boys had no idea that they'd be tested for HIV um, in coming to the clinics. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that the, it, mobilizers uh, especially may see that as a possible deterrent, that if they're telling parents or if they're telling boys that they will be tested for HIV coming into the clinic, then they may not, they may choose not to go. You know, that's just my uh, opinion of that. But that is reflected in the consent form here, which I've shown. So this is the uh, government of Kenya consent form for circumcision. So this was, is the form that was in use while we were there. And I cut out the bottom half of this, uh, which, you know, had this in Swahili. But as you can say that, you know, there's, if it's showing up, that, you know, there's not really any mention of HIV testing at all. And when I questioned a mobilizer about this and asked, you know, why, you know, the consent form doesn't say anything about HIV testing. They, they said, yes, it does. Look. And it was the bit, and they pointed out the bit that says you are, you know, you're giving consent to any further or alternative procedures to be, to be performed, which the clinician may find necessary during the operation. They're like, yeah, there it is right there. That covers HIV testing, um, which I, I don't think so. So reduced quality of care. I mean, again, remember we interviewed nurses, um, surgeons, the in, infection uh, prevention officers that are working in the clinics and about what really happens. I mean, I couldn't believe what they were telling me in terms of, you know, what they would do, you know, on those days, those high season days when there's so many boys waiting, what they'd be doing uh, to speed up the process for, you know, rushing the circumcisions, um, circumcising more boys in a day than, than was allowed, uh, splitting up the surgical team. So you're, you're meant to have at least two people working as a team. But if there's only two people, you know, maybe one goes to one bed, the other goes to another bed just to get more, more done. You know, working late into the evening, uh, you know, all day, sorts of things that just really shouldn't be happening. 
the first day, the first clinic I ever went to, the, the, I saw one of the HIV counselors or um, another staff member was filling out these forms. They had these, these yellow forms where they were supposed to just take a patient history. They were, uh, you know, like blood pressure, weight, uh, allergies, you know, any of that stuff and on, this form, uh, on these forms that each client was given and or not given, but they, they would keep for each client as a part of the accountability and record keeping, certainly. Um, and I, and I saw this, this woman was filling out the forms and putting in body weight, blood pressure, you know, one after the other. And I went up and asked her, I said, well, are these for the boys today? She's like, no, no, these were for the boys from yesterday. <laughs> so she was just making up blood pressures, weights, the whole thing. And just to, just to fill in the forms. Potential solutions. What did we, you know, I've talked about a lot of the problems that we saw in the fields. You know, what are, what are the things that should change? The WHO, when this all started, some of their early documents take aim at this issue of the target specifically and say, like, whatever you do, don't pay per circumcision, and more or less, not in those exact words. But, but the, because they knew the idea of paying per circumcision could lead to the sorts of abuses that I've, that I've mentioned. You know, and one of the, the things that some of the parents and boys mentioned, or even some of the, the staff, was that, you know, if there, were, if there was sort of passive recruitment, if it, you know, like the clinic design, that, you know, if VMMC was a service that the local clinics were offered, if, they, if the clinics offered, then people could, who wanted to get circumcised would come in and get the procedure done, just like, you know, getting checked out for a cold or anything else. The, the response to that from the, the people promoting VMMC is, you know, basically they know full well, they'll never be able to meet the, meet the targets if it was just entirely passive. You know, one of the things we saw was that, you know, the, the mobilizers especially, but all staff really could use some, some training in, in, in ethical conduct especially around, you know, consent, the importance of consent, that sort of thing. You know, they, in some cases, they went above and beyond. For instance, with the consent form, some of the NGOs would have their own sort of consent form that would come with it. And they would add lines for the parents to put their phone number and their national ID as well. And the idea behind that was that then at the clinic, the uh, counselor or some other staff member could call, could take the consent form, could call the parent and confirm, did you, you know, sign this consent form? Is this your signature? Do you know that your son is coming for, for circumcision? The problem is in, in practice that just, you know, it maybe happens sometimes, but it's just a, such an extra burden, especially on those, those high, quote unquote, high season days that it just doesn't happen. Besides the parent's cell phone could be, you know, out of credit or it's not charged or they don't pick up for any other reason. So relying on that entirely just doesn't work um, in practice. I, I mean, I think the idea of recruiting in schools, I certainly understand why it's happening. I think that needs more scrutiny for sure. Um, especially if the teachers are involved, you know, you already have a person of authority coming around, uh, coming in and saying, you know, this is what you need to do, get circumcised. But it, the teacher is standing to the side, nodding, yes, boys, you need to do this. Then what sort of, you know, we just worry about that sort of thing. You know, the targets themselves, I mean, I, you know, I've portrayed them as sort of the root of all evil in this. Potentially, I don't think you can get rid of them entirely, right? Because 
it's what we need to, for the modeling to figure out, you know, if this intervention is going to work, we need to have some sense of how many circumcisions need to happen in terms of budgeting. How do you budget if you don't have targets, for the number of circumcisions? But we do think that, you know, you could have smart targets, right? You could have targets that vary. It's not the same target every month. You don't just take the target for the year and divide by 12. Instead, you you match the targets to those months where you know you're going to have exams and, you know, or you know that there's going to be, you know, the holiday period where boys may be, may be more available for that. Just to take some of the pressure off the, mo the mobilizers, because in those months where they don't get very many clients, they're not getting paid. So this brings me to sort of the larger ethical public health questions that, and, you know, in terms of, you know, what is interesting about this, what can be applied to other, to, to obesity research or, or elsewhere. You know, and the first is, you know, this is, is this a public health intervention or cultural imperialism? You know, I, I think it's very telling that the country that is funding all of this is the country that has far higher rates circumcision normally than, than other countries. I mean, Germany has come out and, and called it a, a circumcising children um, before they can you know, understand what's happening is, like, is a human rights abuse. Um, certainly across Europe and elsewhere, men and boys aren't circumcised at, um, as much as in the United States. Um, and so there's a great paper that just came out and it, you know, I, I don't have the list of references for everything at the end, but if anyone's interested, please send me an email and I can provide references for everything. But, you know, this idea of cultural imperialism is very interesting in terms of this um, and what it says about our views of African sexuality, you know, what, what we think needs to happen. You know, we're talking about a permanent surgical intervention. Bits of people are being cut away as a means to reduce um, or prevent HIV, you know, the spread of HIV essentially, when we have you know, lots of other sorts of interventions that don't go to that extreme. Um, the health promotion mes uh, uh, messaging, this idea of relative risk, right? I think is, is, is interesting. You saw you know, the number 60%, that came up a ton in the, um, in the, the, the health talks. You know, it reduces 60, you know, uh, HIV risk by 60%. The other 40% is up to you. You know, boys would ask, we don't know what happens about this other 40%. Well, if the, the risk is, you know, it's a 60% it's a reduction in the relative risk. If the, what is any individual's risk of acquiring HIV? It's for an individual level, it's pretty low. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense to, to use that in promoting this because it's really misleading to talk about 60% reduction risk. With the targets or these quotas in public health interventions, you know, I, like I said, I don't think we can eliminate them entirely. Um, some would argue um, from the utilitarian perspective that, you know, the, the, that the, the benefits outweigh any of these sort of unintended consequences. I don't think that's that's been proven. I mean, I think you know the effects that we're looking for in terms of reducing the epidemic are on a scale of you know twenty you know decades, twenty thirty years down the line is when you're really going to see the results. So no study has has been done to show in the real world that this actually reduces the epidemic. At the same time, VMMC has been going on. We've had a ton of other interventions coming in, right? 
had condoms for forever. We've had, you know, PrEP and, you know, treatment as prevention, um, all that sort of stuff um, as well. Uh, I think at the very least, we need to take a harm reduction uh, perspective in, 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 in looking at this and the targets and really recognize these, that these unintended consequences are a thing. We can't pretend like they're not. And so then start doing whatever we can to, um, to avoid them. You know, the, the idea of stigma uh, in public health is quite interesting because, you know, some would argue that the ends justify the means, right? Like you can stigmatize smoking. Um, I think a lot of people are, you know, agree to that, that that smoking can and should be stigmatized because it is such a danger. It's a danger to the individuals, but it's a danger through, to others in secondhand smoke. The problem with stigma is that, you know, it goes against sort of the central tenets of ethics and of human rights. You know, it, it disrespects persons and communities. Uh, it, it can be counterproductive and it, and it may worsen inequalities. And, and so I really question the use of stigma. And, you know, you could argue, well, they're not using stigma. Um, stigma is just emerging within these communities. You know, the boys are making fun of each other. Oh, that's normal. Well, it really seemed like the, the mobilizers were, were making use of this stigma, especially in those statements I, I, I had up on the slide before about, you know, you're the one spreading HIV, the boys who are uncircumcised. And so, you know, I want to leave time for questions and all of that, of course. So I want to finish up here, but, you know, this, this notion of, medical anthropology and empirical bioethics, I think is, is very interesting. And I think anthropology and medical anthropology has a lot to offer the, the field of bioethics. So when we talk about empirical bioethics, you know, we're, we want, we're talking about addressing ethically interesting questions through research, you know, so taking ethics into the field or lab or what have you um, and, and using data um, as a part of the, you know, philosophical discussions. You know, of course, as we all know, anthropology has a lot to offer that, <laughs> you know, um, and the knowledge we create as, uh, as medical anthropologists, the methods that we offer, I think are just so valuable to, to looking at this sort of intervention um, and thinking about bioethics. And, and also this sort of, you know, going back to that cultural imperialism, you know, you know bioethics, you know, most of it is in the West. Uh, those writing on the subject, uh, there, you know, some have argued that there's, you know, an ethnocentrism and uh, individualistic centrism or whatever you want to call it within that. And I think anthropology can help sort of be an anthro um, antidote to some of that. So I think that's my last slide. I wanted to leave time for questions. Here are some of the, the publications that we have out. Uh, a couple are currently under review. The rest have already been published and are available. Um, but, you know, thank you very much. And uh, that's the end. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. That's given us a lot to think about.